Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambhutasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambhutasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambhutasa. So earlier today I have been uh, speaking about impermanence and um, I was saying that impermanence is a, a gateway into the Dhamma And the Buddha himself uh, used this gateway first when he, you know, turned his mind towards the Dhamma. And I know, I guess quite a few of you have heard that story already, but I I say it again and start with it. Uh, As most of you might know, the Buddha was brought up in a very privileged way because he was the son of a of an influential man, of a something like a king or like a chieftain in what's today in Nepal. And he, at the birth of the Buddha, there were predictions that he might either become a very powerful ruler or a very enlightened uh, spiritual leader. And his father wanted to do anything in his power to prevent him from becoming a spiritual leader, but rather stay and take you know, take on his um, place as a as a ruler. So he tried to, you know, surround the Buddha only with the best of everything and with the most beautiful of everything. And the story has it that he never saw any thing which would upset him. So he only had the most nice things around him. And then one day he um, went on to a tour with his charioteer into the town and he saw three things which his father prevented him from seeing for a very long time. And those three sites, they are called the heavenly messengers because they have turned his mind around to wanting to know the truth and the first side and all of those three sides they all are connected to impermanence that's why I say this is a gate into the Dhamma and the first side was he saw um, a sick person lying on the side of the road and uh, looking very sick As, uh, looking in a way he didn't, he didn't want to be like this so he felt kind of disturbed and then he drove on and the next side was a very old person bent over on a stick with you know, not many hair and, and looking very weak and, and life was living so that was another very disturbing side and then the last one was a dead 
body, a corpse lying on the side of the road and decomposing. So after he saw those three sides, he asked his charioteer, he said, you know, will this happen to me too? And the charioteer says, yes, you know, everybody who is um, born gets sick, ages and dies. So that, you know, was a, gave the Buddha a great sense of urgency. So within a very short time, he decided to you know, leave behind this wonderful life in the palace, had a beautiful wife and a son. Had, she had just, you know, born to him. And one day he just left and he thought he would like to penetrate underneath appearances. He wanted to know what this is all about. And that set him on his path. And then he... You know, he studied with different teachers and in the end he realized enlightenment and the teaching which we share with you is, is part of what he has left behind, which is written in the books and which can be, you know, conceptually communicated more or less accurately. And then if we you know, apply it in our own practice and then we can refer back to these uh, concepts within our own experience and if we keep at it at, at one point uh, insight will arise and then you know, we can penetrate underneath the appearances and we can cut through delusion and reveal reality and you know generally speaking our experience is because of the delusion of our which is in our mind this delusion weaves a net of uh, concepts around our experience and as long as we you know, haven't been able to cut through it. We, we have uh, attachment to appearances which are not in um, sync with reality. Because, for example, you know, things appear to us as, as separate entities like this bell, and it doesn't look at all like a process. It looks like a separate thing. But in reality, this bell... Is, is impermanent and if you would look you know, with a very powerful microscope you would be able to see that that this is not just a solid thing this is a process so it appears one way but it is another way and the whole you know, teaching of the Buddha is all about overcoming these appearances or maybe going underneath the appearances and getting in touch with reality. And impermanence is one of those three characteristics in which we have to completely realize in order to let go of all delusion. So and once, you know, we have seen impermanence, then it becomes 
pretty quickly clear, it reveals to us the next characteristic, which is um, in the Pali language is called dukkha. Often it has been translated as suffering, but that's not the best translation. Because the word dukkha, you know, consists of two parts and one part is ka, and that's the um, Sanskrit word for um, the hole of a, in the middle of a wheel where the, the axle is inserted. And, and, and uh, do means um, difficult. So a combination of both of that means, you know, that the wheel and the axle which is inserted into the wheel, there's some kind of problematic situation here and the wheel doesn't really move smoothly. It's a, it's a, it's a bumpy ride, basically. And that's one way of describing the experience of being a human being. It's a bumpy ride, I think. <laughs> so, and the word dukkha, you know, if we translate it in a more... Um, helpful way, it, we could say it's unsatisfactory. That which is impermanent is unsatisfactory because we can't rely on it. And if we do rely on it, we'll be disappointed again and again. So, for example, you know, we can, can rely that that might maybe be with us a whole lifetime because it's made from a certain material which where the changing process is much slower than the changing process of a, of a human flesh body. So we mightn't even notice it in one lifetime, but you know, over 10,000 years or so, we, we might be able to see a change in this bell. And the flowers, you know, they certainly will, in two, three weeks, look very unappealing if we don't exchange them for new ones. So, so we easily can get fooled, you know, because of uh, the way our sense organs work. And that's why we are needing, you know, skillful means like, for example, different meditation techniques in order to be able to look underneath appearances. So we can see the connection between impermanence and unsatisfactoriness. And then once those two characteristics have been seen to a certain degree, the next one which reveals itself is, uh, in the Pali language, is called anatta. And the translation is not-self. That which is impermanent and which is unsatisfactory cannot be called to have an unchanging essence, to have an unchanging core, or to have a self. Because, for example, if, it, if this would be unchanging, then we could, you know, we could kind of uh, control it. If we would be, uh, if we would have an un something unchanging within our body and mind, we would be able to pin it down. And 
if you start to meditate and if you really go deeper into this process of body and mind unraveling itself, constantly changing, you'll see that there is no, nothing within this process which is, which is unchanging. And the Buddha has given out a very beautiful simile for that. It's the simile of the chariot. Or in modern language we can say you know, the simile of a car. For example, if you take a car and you take it apart, all of its, all of its different parts, the wheels and the doors and the lights and the roof and the seats and everything, take it apart, where is the car gone? The carness of the car, where is it gone? It was only a concept, it has never existed. And then you can, you know, divide those parts up endlessly, endlessly, until there's only maybe tiny little particles left. But it doesn't mean, you know, that we can't use the car as long as it's working, as long as the parts keep, you know, working together fine. We can use the car, we can drive somewhere. But still, in the end of the day, it's going to fall apart. And it's it's going to be gone. But just for some time, all of those parts are coming together because of causes and conditions. And for this time, which we don't know how long it will be, we can, you know, use it. And if we already know that it is impermanent, we won't be devastated if it's not anymore working. So these three characteristics of life, if we understand them, and if we can really have insight into their workings, our life will be much more peaceful because we won't have wrong expectations. We live with much more equanimity. And Ajahn Chah, one of the great forest masters of Thailand, he was teaching it in that way. He said, you know, you can use this cup, but use it with the perception that it is already broken. So you enjoy it because it's really beautiful and it's really useful. And, but you don't know how long it's going to be like this. So if you use it with the knowing that it is already broken, then when it breaks you won't be devastated by it. And as long as you have it, you can really enjoy it. So that's... I think that's wisdom. And it's not, you know, we don't have to um, memorize tons of, of books or quotations or anything like this. It's just being able to deeply look into experience and then through this process of, of really looking deeply um, make it our own. It becomes part of our being. It's not an intellectual knowledge but it is something which is immediate there when we need it. The word 
wisdom in, in Pali, it's, it's called Panya. And Na means to know, and Pa is, gives that whole notion of knowing a very active quality. So it's not a, a body of knowledge, but it's, it's a, an active ability to open the mind, to realize, you know, when we are contracting uh, um, around concepts and to just be aware of that and to let go and open. And, and let, you know, let the process of nature inform us in a, in a very deep way, which is not up in the head, but it just goes into the heart and it becomes uh, a quality of being. So, for example, you know, when the cup breaks, it's not like, then I have to remember, let's not say I, but one has to remember, you know, that the Buddha has said, uh, all things are impermanent and unsatisfactory, uh -huh, and now I shouldn't be disappointed and blah, blah, blah. It's not like this. <laughs> but it's just like, it doesn't occur anymore. You know, because it has, it has been <coughs> seen for, for what it is. So, it's not like an intellectual repetition of what one has read that would be intellectual knowledge that doesn't help very much. It's, it's a good starting point but it doesn't alleviate the suffering, you know, because the suffering is only um, alleviated by letting go. And, and letting go is not something which, you know, which we can force ourselves with by sinking ourselves into letting go. But, you know, the teachings, they are a very good starting point, but then if you don't jump, you know, from that springboard, if you don't jump into reality, so to say, you know, into letting go, then you will still suffer. So, the, the technology of meditation is, is a skillful means, you know, to get us from this intellectual, intellectual knowledge to realization, through, to, um, you know, to, to bring it home into our own experience, to refer back in the meditation to, to the conceptual understanding and then finding it in our own... Uh, experience and then it, it, it becomes uh, it becomes wisdom which is always with us this active quality of wisdom which informs all our you know 24 hours a day when we are doing things and or not doing things and What's maybe interesting to mention is that according to the Buddha's teaching, the, the thinking mind is, is considered one of the six senses, like hearing, seeing, touching, smelling and tasting. And thinking is just one of the six senses in the Buddha's teaching. It's not like a superior something which makes sense to everything. It's not like that. The, the thinking mind, the inter intellect is is a sense organ and 
it throws up thoughts. Like, you know, the nose, what is the smelling organ? You can smell different things, or the ears hear, the eyes see, and the thinking mind thinks. There's nothing so super special about it. It's only, you know, Western philosophy has has treated it in a very different way, and and it's just one way. So the Buddha has the Buddha has a very different outlook onto this, and I think this is quite uh, surprising. When I heard it for the first time, I thought, "Wow, why not?" I mean, this is actually much less uh, definitive. It's just thoughts which are which are produced by the by the mind, and it's up to us what we are doing with those thoughts. Because if we really start to observe the thinking mind, we can see what we originally think, you know, to be rational processes turn out to be rationalizing. It's processes we try to make sense, you know, of our experience, but it's not necessarily the truth. Because those, you know, the thinking mind relates everything back to, to this body walking around in space and trying, you know, not to die, so to say, you know, trying to be safe. And the thinking process supports that. So it's, it's pretty limited, really. So it's, it's all referring back to this all the time. So not necessary to be relied on too much for accurate information, I think. Thinking again. <laughs> um, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So these three characteristics, you know, once they have been understood to a certain degree, then we are able to switch in the meditation. And this is a very important shift when we, you know, make the shift from the content of the mind to the structure. We are not anymore so fascinated, you know, by all of the stories, but we have an increasing capacity to shift and look at the structure, which is everything is impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self. So then sometimes, you know, we can pull ourselves out from the fascination of the stories, the dangerous stories and the wonderful stories. And then we see more the structure, the process itself. And the fascination and the identification is is kind of easing out. And because of that, there's more capacity, you know, for, for being in the present moment because... If you just see, you know, the three characteristics, it's somehow less compelling. It takes out a certain stickiness, you know, of the whole process. Because it's, it's, it's not so personal any longer. And this is a very important shift. And I hope, you know, that you can maybe um, get a taste of that. For example, by you know familiarizing yourself with impermanence, 
in the meditation, how we have been teaching is just sitting with the breath and, you know, instead of wanting to push yourself to achieve like a certain intensity of concentration or stopping thinking or all of that, that's one way of doing it, but that's not how we are teaching it. We teaching it more in, you know, relaxing into the present moment and opening and seeing, for example, impermanence. And you can see impermanence in the way that, for example, your mind mightn't stay long with the object. No problem. If you see the impermanence of the process, that's what really frees you. It's not being able to kind of force yourself to not think or so. So, you know, the meditation object is very much here to show you that you can't stay with it. And sometimes you might, but that's not the point. We are not trying, you know, to win the prize in staying as long as possible with the press or something like that. It's more like seeing how it works. That's that's what we want. And and we need we need some fixed point in order to see the deviations. So the, the that point is only here to show you that, because this is where you know what you where you can see how the process is and how the process works. And this is natural, but we have to really see it. So, you know, letting go of uh, the fascination with, with ego, basically. Which is, you know... Simply speaking, the ego is a contraction against the boundless awareness, which is the true nature of our mind. And because we are not comfortable with it yet, because if we would be, we would be enlightened. So we have this tendency, you know, we can't tolerate that spaciousness for too long. We always have to come back to to something again, because this is kind of uh, normal for us, this feeling of being somebody that feels kind of right for us. Because that's, you know, how we have been conditioned and maybe then at one point in our life we, we find the teaching and then a process of deconditioning starts and it will take some time according to our you know, karma, according to past cultivation and also other points. But it's, it's a process, you know, which can be, can be done because, you know, if, if something is created, it can be uncreated again. And that's what we try to do here, you know, on those retreats. We try to undo all of those knots again, or a certain amount of those, through insight. And because, you know, liberation from uh, delusion is actually 
nothing else but letting go in this boundless awareness. And making friends with uncertainty. Making friends with those three characteristics. And, you know, intellectually it's, it's uh, not too difficult to understand, but emotionally to tolerate that, that's, better, you know, that's why it's not, not so easy. Because it doesn't seem to be an easy thing to tolerate this uncertainty. And I'm sure, you know, you all know it from your own experience. Because life is just an open-ended process and it's, it's really it's a mystery. We don't know what's going to happen next. And because, you know, we have these uh, minds which we have as human beings and they, you know, work in in a dualistic way. So we have gotten used to um, discriminate whatever happens into good and bad, pleasant and unpleasant, black and white. So we have developed a, a, a dualistic way of looking at experience and uh, judging everything and then behaving accordingly by wanting some things and wanting to keep them for long and pin them down and not wanting other things and want to keep, keep them away from us. And then we have developed whole personalities around this. And they keep us busy, those personalities. And, you know, in reality, it is very much not possible to say if something is good or bad. It's only possible, you know, if we, if we see it in a, in, a, in a certain context. And I have another very uh, kind of good teaching story, which I have told already a few times, but I say it again. It's a, there's a, an old farmer who has only one horse. And one day, you know, this horse runs away and then everybody in the village says, oh, you know, this poor man, his only horse was running away. Now he has nobody who can help him plowing his fields. Oh, this is a real disaster. And he says, let's see what's going to happen. He's a wise farmer. <laughs> Let's see. And then the next day the horse comes back and it brings a whole group of horses with it. <laughs> and then, wow, everybody's looking. And then his, his only son 
is helping, you know, to tame the horses. And then in the process of that, he falls off the horse and he breaks his leg. And then everybody says, oh, now the only son of the farmer, he broke his leg. Now he can't help him, you know, with working on the farm. Oh, this is really difficult. And he says again, let's see what's going to happen. And then the next day, the, you know, the... Um, ministers of the king also come to the village and they want to recruit men for going to war and they can't take his son because he has a broken leg. <laughs> so and on and on goes the story. And so it is with our lives as well. You know, things which look like a real disaster, often, you know, when we look back, they turn out to have been a real blessing. So... I think this is a very simple story, but I, I must say in my own life, it has been like this, and I guess, you know, it must have been for you like that as well. So, you know, this uncertainty is, we can see it either as a curse or as a blessing. It's up to you. I nowadays try to see it as a blessing more and more. Because not only, you know, makes it my life, I have a more happy life, and there's much more scope for surprise and much more space for the mystery to unfold. If we try to make everything safe and predictable, a lot will escape us in terms of the mystery of life we can, you know, open up to this immense process which is going on for so <coughs> long and it has worked pretty well, I'd say. You know, if you think that this planet 4.5 billion years ago, it was just a liquid of very hot elements, you know, churning away. And now what's happening here on this planet, you know, we can produce iPhones and uh, <laughs> listen to most exquisite music on it or looking at the most beautiful paintings on it and movies and nature and it's amazing this process and we can just you know consider ourselves as part of it rather than have to, you know, be on top of it, controlling it. And, you know, seeing the three characteristics for what they are, that brings it home very well, that we are part of this, not on top of it. And, you know, if we can really live in that way and we can relax into it, then it will reveal itself to us more and more. And then our life will be much more in harmony with it and there will be less friction. And I think that's why you're all here, including myself, you know, I'd like to have less friction. I like to have more peace and more harmony in my life. And 
I have tried everything to control it. It hasn't worked very well. So, you know, then the mind is ready for turning away, you know, from... its old ways and turning towards Dhamma. And I've brought a, a little poem from Rumi, one of my favorite writers, and uh, it brings it home very nicely, I would say. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. They may be cleaning you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door, laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So, we are now ending with the Meta mantra. chant the metta mantra and then we'll end with sharing the blessings of our practice with all sentient beings be 
peaceful and at peace. May we be happy. May I be filled with love and kindness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be happy. May you be filled with love and kindness. May you be well. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be happy. May we be filled with love and kindness. May we be well, may we be peaceful and at ease, may we be happy, may I be filled with love and kindness, may I be peaceful and at ease. May I be happy. May you be filled with love and kindness. May you be well. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be happy. May we be filled with love and kindness. May we be well. May we be peaceful and at ease. May we be happy. Turn to page 33, page 33, 33. And uh, this is something we haven't really spoken about, but a very, very supportive aspect of the practice is to consciously share the the merits or the the goodness of your practice with others. So, you know, if it's just about me and my practice, it can get a bit dry and limited. But just to... in the beginning of the day and at the end of the day to have the intention of sharing whatever whatever benefits may arise from my practice today may may this may this benefit people dear to me people I I don't know and people who are hostile may those who are friendly indifferent or hostile may all beings receive the blessings of my life It's it's a wonderful intention so in the, in the monastic life, this is something we 
can reflect on every day. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest neighbors and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice. And through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind, with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. And we'll end with the closing homage on page 20. Blessed One, I render homage to the Buddha, the Blessed One. The teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.